Welcome, everyone. Welcome. It is such a treat to see you. And uh, I was away last week, and uh, I've, so I've missed you, thought of you, and uh, it's nice to see your faces and be practicing together again this week. Uh, para la comunidad hispanohablante, si hay alguna persona aquí que eh, le gustaría interpretación simultánea, puedes eh, elegir eso. En el menú va a haber interpretación al español, gracias a nuestra amiga Claudia que está aquí. Y, um, bien. So uh, one other thing I want to mention is just that I noticed that a few people did come on last week, even though we had announced that uh, that it wasn't going to be happening. So it's always just a good idea to check in with the homepage of the website. Uh, and before you get logged in, you'll see we put a note there if there's not going to be a session or especially as the holidays are coming along. So I'm planning to be here um, all of these next Sundays, probably right through until the end of the year. But in case there are any schedule changes, it's always good to have a look there. All right, wonderful. So this being the Sunday Sound of Dhamma, we are going to begin with a brief, about a 10 minute or so meditation. And then uh, I'll offer Dhamma talk, Dhamma reflection, and we'll have a bit of time for questions or reflections at that time at the end. So for now, I uh, invite you to begin to settle into your meditation posture. Can everybody hear me okay? Does it sound all right? Yes, okay. I like to begin with a little movement, a little rocking of the body and of the head, just softening up any tightness. And perhaps allowing the body to come into a balanced, upright posture. And moving the attention to the crown of the head. And becoming aware of the earth element in the body.
slowly moving the attention downward, very, very slowly, aware of earth in every cell of the body. No need to really visualize that. You're just sensing the natural firmness and heaviness and stability of this physical body. Moving the attention downward slowly. Aware of the natural stability.
Really taking your time to move the attention slowly through the body. And eventually, when you reach your feet, you can begin moving upward again. Still aware of the natural steadiness of the earth element.
Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arato Samma Sambhutasa Bhutang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami As human beings, we are often concerned with ideas about who we are or who we have been in the past or who we might be in the future. This uh, questions of identity, of self-understanding, This is a part of everyone's human experience. And in fact, it's, uh, that's true because we have this capacity to reflect on our inner world. We have this capacity to turn our attention toward ourselves, toward our own thinking, our own bodies, and see. Uh, these things and understand something about that as distinct from animals, for example, who might not understand themselves, even uh, the parts of themselves that they can see. You know, I think of like a puppy biting its own tail. So th these questions about who we were or who we might be in the future, or who we are now, these are also questions that Buddhism is interested in. The practice of Buddhism is interested in these questions. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I spoke about the, the story of the master asking his Dharma brother about his original face what who what is what are what is your original face or what is what are you without your identity of this lifetime you must be something or you must this thing what was it before even this identity that you have figured out for yourself and yet we also see for example in uh, Majjhima Nikaya 2, 
in the second sutta of the middle length discourse, as we see the Buddha say uh, that one of the uh, ways that we can um, abandon certain kinds of unskillful thought is by letting go of these uh, un, uh, unprofitable questions or useless questions. And some of those questions are that, was I in the past? What was I in the past? Am I now? Will I be in the future? So how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile this, this tendency and this kind of questioning that we see in certain parts of the tradition or this admonition against certain kinds of questioning in other parts of the tradition? Do we just accept that as a difference? Or is there some way to understand what these are pointing to? Some general, more general principle there. So I want to say that in particular in that uh, middle-length discourse, when the Buddha is speaking that way, that I don't think that he is suggesting that we shouldn't reflect on ourselves, but rather that speculative questioning, just philosophical questioning about who I am or am I, is not useful. And that actually uh, that kind of speculation or just uh, thought experiments, if you will, can lead to a lot of spinning, can lead to uh, using up a lot of energy in ways that are not necessarily going to open up the path of wisdom for us. In fact, you could say that that is one of the defining characteristics of practice that is distinct from psychology or philosophy of any kind. Right? So it's not enough just to ask the questions idly or to ask the questions as thought experiments. But it is important to somehow engage, and I think we inevitably want to engage with the questions. So what to do instead? What to do instead of philosophizing or asking in that more general way? And for that, I brought an, another koan, another uh, of the old Dhamma stories to help illustrate a point. And, uh, and perhaps this will open things up or perhaps it will leave you something to chew on. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Either way, it's, uh, I hope that it will be a fruitful uh, endeavor. So this is, uh, this is a koan. Uh, koan means, it just means uh, a teaching story it's uh, related to the ancient practice in China of posting public proclamations in, um, uh, on a board. And it's like a physical practice that they used to do. So everybody knew what the law was in their part of the world. And so it has this 
connotation or this sort of subtle meaning of things that stories that are telling us about something that applies to everyone. So, so this particular koan is uh, is referenced, and I had a lovely visit uh, with Fumio there in uh, Vienna last week for a couple of days, and we were doing some. We had some uh, discussion of uh, the Ehe Shingi. So this is a teaching of Soto Zen, of a particular kind of Zen practice from Japan, and. Uh, in his instructions to the temple administrator responsible for the kitchen of all things, uh, Dogen, Ehe Dogen, who was the founder of that particular school, uh, references, kind of uh, gives a little side eye to this story, this ancient teaching story, which is from China. We should be clear that it's not from Japan, it's actually from China. And, uh, and so the story goes like this. So it's a story about Guishan and Yangshan. Guishan and Yangshan. So now Guishan and Yangshan become towering figures, you could say. They become really famous teachers at some point later. But this story is a little bit before that point. And you'll see why and just why we know that in just a minute. But I also want to say this, that sometimes these names, the way that we relate to these names or the fact that these stories are from some other part of the world is, um, is interesting. Sometimes we think that it's more important because it comes from over there, or sometimes we assume that it has a certain flavor or a certain meaning, or we discount it because it doesn't sound like me. This name doesn't sound like me. But it could equally have been, you know, Master Mary and Brother John. You know, it could easily have been another set of names. So, again, as with all the Koan stories, I invite you to receive this in the sense of something that could relate directly to your own experience. So, Guishan and Yangshan. Yangshan is standing on a hillside, and he is making a rice paddy. So some of you may have traveled to this part of the world, or you may have seen images of this. So a rice paddy is a law, is a flat field, and it has to be flat, and it has to be a little bit deep, actually, because it has to hold water. The rice actually needs, the rice seeds need to be completely immersed in water for them to actually sprout up above the water and then when they uh, come to seed the seed is the rice okay so but you need this flat area such that it will hold a little a little layer of water all the way across it so if you have a hillside then and you want to make a rice paddy what you do is you're kind of cutting you're digging into the hillside right and you're making a flat portion where you had a slope you're just making a flat Okay, you understand? So you dig in to the hillside and you make a flat thing for the patty. So that's the work that Yangshan is doing. Yangshan is the student in this case, right? He's out there, he's working, he's creating this rice field so that the monastery will have rice to eat at some point in the future. And he sees his teacher, Guishan, approaching. So Guishan's approaching 
Weishan's doing his own work as well, but he comes out to the hillside to see Yangshan. And so, so Yangshan sees him and says, this place is so low and that place is so high. This place is low and that place is high. So you might imagine like Yangshan's coming up over the top of the hill or something like this. Yangshan's standing, uh, Guishan rather, is standing higher than Yangshan, the teacher. He's standing up maybe at the top of the hill. And Yangshan is standing below trying to make his rice paddy happen. And the teacher says, water makes things equal. Why don't you just level it with water? And then the student says, water is not reliable, teacher. <laughs> so now this is a translation by Shohako Kimura and Taigen Dan Leighton, who are extremely reputable translators. Water is not reliable, teacher. A high place is high level, and a low place is low level. And the teacher agreed. So that's the story. That's the literal part of the story, right? So figuratively, what's happening here is that uh, the student, Yangshan, is saying something about difference. And he's being respectful of his teacher, saying, oh, I'm in the low position and you're in the higher position. Right? And then his teacher responds with something kind of challenging, slightly challenging, right? Well, then just even it out. Just even it out. And how do you even it out? With water. The, the literal thing that he said to him is with water. But water represents this, in that case, the this unifying quality. Water represents the absolute. Water represents the, the um, you could say, the general principle in this koan. So, the teacher is basically saying to the student, well, you don't have to get caught up in the differences between us. You could just think about the universal, the same, the principles that are the same. And the student comes back at him and challenges him a little bit as well, right? The student comes back at him and says, no. You can't just gloss over the differences. That what's high is high and what's low is low. In other words, we there we can't we we need to meet the specific conditions that are present, and not just try to even it all out with a concept. So it's a beautiful story because. Sometimes one of the things that's, so his conclusion, the student's conclusion, which the master agrees with, and it's not always that way. Oftentimes the student comes to a conclusion, and then you see in these stories that the master says, no, 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 it's not like that, actually. <laughs> but in this case, the, he gets the the uh, thumbs up from Guishan. Um, but so the conclusion is, 
that the high is high and the low is low. And so sometimes this koan has been criticized for meaning that people are stuck in their places, that there's some form of like reinforcing hierarchy here or reinforcing a sense of discrimination or differentiation between people and that that's actually not a skillful thing. But to that, I want to say that, again, if we look very carefully, what's happened here is the is that differentiation has been turned upside down, right? The student is the one that came up with the final teaching, not the teacher. Yangshan is the one who completes the koan. So their roles have changed. Yangshan changed up the roles by doing what? By acknowledging the specific principle. So it's a beautiful, beautiful koan because it tells us something about the way in which engaging with our lives changes the, the dynamic. When we look at our lives from the perspective of some uh, attempt at a conceptual glossing over, then we are by definition missing something. We think that we've captured it all in the concept, but we are by definition missing something, according to Buddhism. So that is also what the Buddha was pointing at, right? That's the same thing that the Buddha is pointing at. Because the Buddha is saying, don't just speculate endlessly about what you are, actually observe it. Right? Look at these five khandas, look at these six sense bases, look at the interaction between body and mind, look at the interaction between this body and mind and the environment or your teacher. And in that, observation and in that meeting it being present for it acknowledging the specific the specificity of it what's true about it what's actually there then the dynamic has changed then you are in the midst of that general principle you are in the midst of what's actually real about it what can be known about it? Hmm? So you're able to not only observe, but you're also able to respond. And this is a very important principle within Buddhism as well, because you can't practice with anything that you can't actually observe. Unless you can become aware of a thing, you can't actually practice with it. This is why mindfulness is always the first of the seven awakening factors. Okay. So, so that engagement is what enables the whole package, is what enables the responsiveness to the next moment. So if you want to know, but coming back to those big questions of humanity, if you want to know how your past has impacted you, you can look at what's happening right now and see that. 
If you want to know who you are in this moment, you can look at what's happening right now in body and mind and see that. If you want to know what you might be in the future, well, you can look at what are, what are the conditions that are present here and the responses that are coming, right? Moment after moment, or that you choose, right? This is the principle of kama. What happens here is these are the outcomes, some karmic outcomes and some things that are sort of karmically neutral, just conditions that are present. But it's your response to that which engages the next outcome, right? Your intentional responses to what's here is what actually is generating those future outcomes. That's also very fundamental. That's part of right view, the very first part of right view. So, so we've changed the dynamic by doing what Yangshan says and not glossing over the questions of personal identity, but actually observing the specific principles. Then you've shifted the dynamic from this, from this uh, potential tendency of spinning and building concepts and building divisiveness right, to something which actually enables you to engage with what is really here and with what is with what this thing is doing in the world. Because that's the other thing that you can see. Right, what this body and mind are doing in the world, how they are affected by the environment, how they are impacting the environment. So, you, so it shifts from a kind of passivity and a kind of fixed positions to a much more empowered path. Because it is a path about clarity and discovery and um, working with working with the principles of this life rather than wishing that they were one way or another. And that kind of clarity is very, very powerful. That kind of clarity is uh, it means that we sh- that uh, as uh, we shift from being pushed around by our karmic circumstances to understanding our role in them. We shift from being boxed in by the specific conditions of our life to understanding our role in them. 
both what we can and cannot change, right? So I've spoken oftentimes also about deep clarity that can come about that. If you want to change the contents of your life, if you want to change your identity, if you want to change what's happening in your world, you can. You can make choices that would lead to all kinds of changes in the content of your life. Like maybe living in London. <laughs> or some other choice you might make. Huh? Being the person to go to Mars or whatever it is. I don't know. People have different aspirations. So you can. You can change. You can you can make changes that result in, in pretty dramatic or subtle changes to the content of your life, right? The storyline, the identity parts, the, the signposts, if you will. But the principles that are at work here, the principles that you're finding when you meet those specifics, right? Like karma, like impermanence, like dukkha, right, the unsatisfactoriness, like uh, inter interconnection, interdependence, the way that things are related. If you want those things to change, that is going to cause you even more suffering. Because those things are called the universals for a reason. And we see that in the world. A tremendous amount of suffering, in particular about impermanence. It doesn't mean that we need to feel helpless or that we need to throw in the towel and not try to have an effect. We do have an effect. Impermanence enables us to have an effect, actually. But it does mean that when we, when we stand in opposition to natural impermanence, that is going to cause suffering. bringing ourselves to these, these the, the simplest of truths, you could say. Of observing what's happening in body and mind. And the questions of identity can actually be quite clear. Hmm? 
But if we try to philosophize, if we try to encapsulate this lived experience in some kind of concept, any kind of concept, then we will find inevitably that there's more to be discovered. We will run into our errors, our mistakes there. This is also one of the uh, one of the beautiful themes that runs throughout many different forms of Buddhism, this idea that we that uh, true wisdom cannot be framed that way. It can be embodied. It can be experienced. And we can point at it to a certain degree with our words and our, our writings and maybe a painting or two. But no thought, no particular idea would actually be true to the reality of Dhamma. We can say the reality of reality. And still, you know, we have to say a thing or two here and there. To close with another uh, another quote from Dogen, another teaching from Dogen, he says, we use, uh, he, he refers to this fabulous Japanese word called kapatsupachi, kapatsupachi. <laughs> Say it, everybody, together with me. Kapatsupachi. <laughs> it's a fun word because it's about it's the sound that the fish makes when the fish jumps out of the water. Kapatsupachi. <laughs> right? And he says, that's in Buddhism, that's how we use words. We use words like the way that the fish uses the water to leave the water. We use words to escape words. That's what we're doing right here in this talk, in what we read, and what we in the koan. Yeah. So just remember that when you're thinking also about yourself and these questions about who was I or who will I be or who am I or who is that person or what is, you know, life. It's like, right, right, right. Find out what's actually going on here. And that, on the basis of that, you will be able to leap free of those questions altogether. So thank you for your kind attention today.